This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Before we get started today, a quick note about another show. I know you probably care about climate change if you're listening to this podcast, so I want to recommend another one that's sharing some of the most powerful ideas about the climate crisis. It's called Countdown, and it's part of TED's global initiative to champion and accelerate solutions to the climate crisis, turning ideas into action. With talks from Prince William, decarbonization strategist Monica Araya, environmental activist Severn Cullis Suzuki, and many, many more. You can check out Countdown wherever you listen to podcasts and stick around after this episode to hear a clip from the show on why climate justice can't happen without racial justice. You're watching ABC 7 News at 11. Two activists spearheading a landmark class action lawsuit against Chevron are receiving the world's most prestigious environmental honor today. Pablo Fajardo and Luis Yanza are accepting the Goldman Prize in San Francisco today. It is for their efforts to make Chevron clean up what some environmentalists call the world's worst oil-related disaster. This is a clip from the documentary Crude, The Real Price of Oil, about the Chevron litigation in Ecuador. This particular scene shows what happened when Ecuadorian attorney Pablo Fajardo and activist Luis Llanza came to San Francisco to accept the Goldman Environmental Prize. Remember, we mentioned this a couple episodes back. Tonight, Chevron is fighting the claim and the two men who they say have made up their story for their own financial gain. They're frankly a, a group of con men that have put one past the, the Goldmans and have been putting them putting it past the, uh, the media for quite some time now too. Si ustedes consideran investiguen la if vida you, de Pablo Fajardo. If you deem so, please do investigate the life of Pablo Fajardo. Investiguen la vida de Chevron. And investigate what Chevron's life is. Así que una so, vez que ustedes investiguen darán once, la respuesta a quién está mintiendo en este caso. Once you investigate, you'll see who is lying in this case. We mentioned last time that one of the many subpoenas that Chevron's attorney, Randy Mastro, filed when Chevron brought on his firm, Gibson Dunn, to help with their defense was for outtakes from this film, Crude. It was a big moment in the case, and today we're going to dig into it in detail with the documentary's filmmaker, Joe Berlinger. 
Berlinger is a pioneering documentary filmmaker who's made several groundbreaking films, both before and since Crude, including Paradise Lost, Brothers Keeper, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, and more recently, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, and Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, both for Netflix. Hey, Bob, I... I, I... I, 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 can I call you later? I know you're wishing me a happy birthday, but I'm in the middle of a podcast. So. Is it your birthday today? It is my birthday. Oh my God, happy birthday. I started bugging Berlinger to talk to us for this season months ago, and it took a lot of convincing, but ultimately he agreed to do it, and on his birthday, no less. It's no wonder he was hesitant. Mastro and his team made Berlinger's life hell for a couple of years. When they subpoenaed his outtakes, Berlinger fought it. As an independent documentarian, he figured he had First Amendment protections and journalistic privilege. And he didn't want to set a bad precedent for his industry or for journalists in general. He paid a heavy price for that fight, literally and figuratively. That story coming up right after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 440. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then 
the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Drilled Season 5, La Lucha Longa. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today we're talking to documentary film director Joe Berlinger, and we're digging into the ramp up to this RICO case that was filed just before the verdict came out in Ecuador. We talked about that a bit at the end of the last episode. Here's Berlinger describing how he started to make this film in the first place. One of the ironies of this film having had such a deep impact on my life is I never wanted to make it in the first place. In order to get outtakes from Crude, Randy Mastro had to show that Berlinger was neither independent nor a journalist. He did that with two key accusations. First, that the film was solicited by the plaintiff's attorneys. And second, that the plaintiff's attorneys had editorial input. Here's Berlinger. Stephen Donziger, the plaintiff's lawyer, had a mutual friend who knew me and Stephen Donziger came to my office in New York in, I think, 2005 and pitched me on the idea of making a film, but obviously not pitching me to work for them. They knew I was an independent journalist and they just, you know, so believed in the story that they wanted a filmmaker of my stature to to take a look at the story. And initially, I was very hesitant. Now, keep in mind, this was 2005. Streaming was not really a thing. Netflix was still mostly just mailing people DVDs. And documentaries were gaining in popularity, but this more recent boom was nowhere in sight. It was hard to sell a documentary at the time, much less one in Spanish, about an environmental issue in a country far away from the U.S. They were just pitching me. They thought this would make a great film. It was an interesting period to step into the case. The trial had started in Ecuador in 2003 and had kind of petered out, and they were waiting for these judicial field inspections to start in the coming year. And so uh, pitched me several times about, about it, and I was a little reluctant. And Donziger said to me, look, let me take you down and show you the region, you know, the famous taxi tour that, you know, so many people have taken. You might remember us mentioning the taxi tour a few episodes back when we met Donald Moncayo. It was a tour the plaintiffs took many journalists and politicians on over the years of the various oil pits Texaco had left in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And he was very persistent. You know, they really thought I was the right guy because I had made two well-known criminal justice films, Paradise Lost and Brothers Keeper. And uh, initially I was just reluctant and, and Donziger was, a, was somewhat relentless in trying to win me over to come down and take Toxy Tour. And so several months after that first meeting, he called again and said, I really want to show you the, the region. And I said, look, I will go down and check it out. It sounds like an interesting personal experience, but you know, I don't want to mismanage your expectations. I have lots of hesitation and doubt about whether or not I want to make this film. I have other projects happening. I think this one will be a difficult one to raise money for. 
but I will take the taxi tour, although it wasn't called that then to me. Um, but I will go down and take the, take the tour of the region as long as you understand that I'm not promising you that I'm going to commit to making a film about it. So he went, and when he got to the Amazon in Ecuador, Berlinger says he was shocked by what he saw. I was just blown away by the devastation. I mean, here we are in a pristine, or what was supposed to be this pristine region of the world that everyone talks about the Amazon being so special and magical, and all I saw was gas flares out of, uh, you know, oil ref- oil refineries, uh, these pits, these unlined pits all over the landscape, people living in over, over these pits, people dying of cancer. It was, I was horrified. It was, it was kind of my, my wake up call. And I remember in particular, the moment that it, I just felt like I had to make this film is we were uh, paddling by canoe uh, to Dureno, which is the ancestral land of the Kofan where prior to Texaco's arrival, there were about 15,000 Kofan and, and now there were just hundreds of Kofan living on their ancestral lands. And as we pulled up, we were going to have a meeting with some of the tribal leaders. And as we pulled up to, to the shore to get out, I looked to my left and there was a family, several families sitting around a fire eating canned tuna fish out of these giant imagine you know the these big industrial kind of vats of tuna that that a restaurant might buy at whatever the ecuadorian equivalent of costco would be and here we were in the middle of the amazon rainforest you know with water-based people the kofan and these these families were eating canned tuna fish because there was no there was no fish in their in their rivers and i just i just felt like you know something's got to be done he didn't know how he was going to do it but berlinger couldn't shake the feeling that this film needed to be made and that he needed to be the one to make it i got home and i went upstairs and tucked my child into bed and went to the tap and took a drink of water and looked at the glass of water and thought to myself, you know, these luxuries that we take for granted, these poor people, these water-based people have polluted water. You know, they use water for transportation, for drinking, for bathing, for cleaning. And I just, I just felt like the universe tapping me on the shoulder saying, you know, you, for whatever reason, you're the guy who has to make this movie and don't worry about fundraising. And in fact, I started the movie with my own resources because I just, I just felt like somebody had to tell this story because I was just, I could not believe what I saw. It was, it was horrifying. Berlinger says the legal proceedings provided some narrative structure and drama to the story, but he was never really interested in making a film about a lawsuit or siding with one side or the other. You know, my style of filmmaking is to show both sides of the story and let the viewer decide. And the plaintiffs actually, when they saw the movie at Sundance, were kind of shocked at how much Chevron's point of view was in the film. I actually had a much more 30,000 foot view of the situation which was, 
as much as I admire the historic nature of this case, as much as it as this David and Goliath story was impressive cinematically, uh, and as impressive as it is that indigenous people were actually holding Chevron to account for the actions of Texaco in this historic lawsuit, my interest in this case was a little different, and it's why I show both sides in the movie. It's true, you hear from a lot of different attorneys and scientists and other kinds of experts throughout the film. Here's an example where Berlinger interviewed Ricardo Reyes Vega, the longtime Chevron attorney in Ecuador. You've heard his name come up a few times this season. My name is Ricardo Reyes Vega. I've been with the company for 30 years, practicing law in uh, different countries and jurisdictions. Um, um, my involvement with Ecuador started in 1991 when uh, our concession was uh, about to expire. We try really to get an extension for another 10 years. We proposed uh, 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 an additional investment in Ecuador. The government uh, at the time uh, basically uh, thought that uh, they didn't want to do that. And they said, uh, the, well, we want to have 100% uh, ownership of the consortium oil fields. It's known that uh, Petrocodor has had a very poor operational record. I mean, the movie's actually quite balanced because for me, there is something deeply disturbing about an environmental calamity of this magnitude, the area the size of Rhode Island, more oil dumped than you know, 30 times more oil, as I understand it, dumped than the Exxon Valdez incident. And why is it that this environmental calamity is being held hostage to a protracted legal proceeding? If this was, you know, the BP oil spill or the spill outside of Santa Barbara, if this was on the shores of the United States or a European country, there would be immediate environmental remediation, and then the legal proceedings would figure out who's responsible, as happened in this country many times. Meanwhile, these poor people have been held hostage for 30 years to this case, and that really, that was the point of the film. That's why I show both sides. I let each side have their say, but to me, there's something even more fundamentally wrong that the world you know, we know how important the Amazon is to the, the Earth's ecosystem, and we are destroying the Amazon, as we all know. And oil extraction is a dirty, messy business. And if this, if this incident had happened anywhere where white people live, it would have been cleaned up, you know, and then they would have figured out the culpability later. My point of view was, look, I am not smart enough to tell you whether or not Chevron has wrapped itself up in enough legal arguments to be legally correct in this situation. But there is a moral issue here with such devastation. Why are we not cleaning it up now and figuring out the legal responsibility later? That's really is the point of view of the movie and why the irony that um, I was castigated as a shill and a propagandist for the plaintiffs is just so fundamentally wrong.
One of the strategies Gibson Dunn took to try to undermine the case in Ecuador was to pit the plaintiff's attorneys against each other. We're going to get into that strategy in a bit more detail in the next episode, but Berlinger had a bird's eye view of some of the natural tensions between the Ecuadorian and American attorneys, things that would have been easy for a master litigator like Mastro to exploit. I mean, from a cinematic standpoint, you couldn't have asked for a better pairing of Pablo and Steven Donziger. Pablo is a very impressive guy. I mean, you know, he grew up in that region. He worked in the oil fields. He was impoverished. Uh, he self-educated lawyer, finding himself at the center of one of the most historic and biggest environmental lawsuits in history. We spoke with Pablo for this season, and unfortunately, we were talking to Pablo over the internet, and the connection wasn't great, so the recording hasn't turned out that well. So instead, I'm going to play another clip from Crude because it shows you kind of how Pablo interacted with the plaintiffs, what he was doing on the ground in Ecuador. This is a scene where Fajardo is speaking with members of the Sequoia tribe. That's the tribe that Justino Piaguaje is a leader of. We've heard from him a couple times this season. Bueno, compañeros, eh, primeramente, gracias por la bienvenida. Gracias por recibirnos aquí. He says, first of all, thank you for the welcome. Thank you for having us. También gracias a los compañeros de Pueblo Sequoia que son firmantes de la demanda. Thanks also to the Sequoia Village that signed on to the lawsuit. Todos ellos han contribuido para que este juicio avance y no se detenga. All of these contributions have allowed the trial to move forward. Paired with... Donziger, you know, is a big guy, big in many ways. He has a big presence. He's physically large. And so Donziger was a very large presence. And Pablo was a very quiet but commanding presence. I mean, he has, he just had this natural charisma, a quietness to him, but it's hard to explain, but he just, he just oozed with morality and um, somebody on a mission and the two of them together were quite an interesting pair. It's, you know, this quiet, serious, committed, Che Guevara kind of figure who is a man of the people, who is not motivated by finances, who really is a hero, in my opinion. Whether you believe in the case's merits or not, he is a hero. And uh, Donziger, you know, also is heroic, but I think is a much more complicated figure, strong and dynamic presence who drove the case forward. There there would have been no case without him, but he's a package. And um, there was, you know, there was some stuff that I think rubbed the Ecuadorians the wrong way. And it was a very complicated relationship that I observed, you know, not the least of which is something that's not Donziger's fault, but this whole white white savior thing in a country that was trying to throw off the yoke of imperialism yeah totally here you here you had this big tall aggressive white guy telling them what to do and on the one hand they needed that counsel but on the other hand i think it rubbed people um, the wrong way as well but there would have been no case without donziger mastro argued that there would have been no documentary without donziger either And Donziger did pitch Berlinger the idea of doing a documentary, and he did show him around in Ecuador. But importantly, Berlinger says he paid his own way for that initial Toxie tour trip that convinced him to make the film. 
And also, this whole thing of someone pitching you a story and then encouraging you to go check it out more, it's extremely common. People pitch me stories all the time. They link me up with sources or information. Whistleblowers have leaked documents to me. Former Exxon scientists have had me over to talk to them at length. None of that means that I work for any of these people or that covering a story that I get pitched somehow erodes my First Amendment rights as a journalist. In my court papers where I lost my subpoena battle, they deemed I was not a journalist because Donziger solicited the movie from me and, and used verbiage to make it seem like somehow they paid for the movie or they hired me to do the movie. But the court disregarded the fact that I had a DGA deal memo that said I have final cut. The DGA is the Directors Guild of America. That's the labor union for film and TV directors. I had a DGA deal memo that said I have final cut, that the release that Steven Donziger and all the other plaintiffs signed gave me final cut of the movie. They had no editorial uh, rights to the film. They did not pay me to make the film. It was an independently financed film. The court ignored the deal memo with respect to the other argument in Masters' subpoena request, too, that the plaintiff's attorneys had editorial input on the film. That argument was made on the basis of one key thing. Here's Mastro. So, um, Joe Berlinger uh, produces Crude, uh, and... uh, it's, it sh- shows on the festival circuit. Um, yeah. Then it comes out uh, on Netflix. And uh, a curious thing was picked up by uh, the, the Chevron team. There was a change in scenes from the film festival version to the Netflix version. Mm. Um, and the, the scene that had been changed or deleted, was a scene that showed someone supposedly working as an independent expert for Cabrera was in fact meeting with the plaintiffs, lawyers, and their clients at a session that Joe Berlinger, with Steve Donziger in attendance, um, with uh, that Joe Berlinger filmed. And then by the time it came out on Netflix, that scene had been deleted so you could... Uh, so you could still hear the audio because the audio was one of the lawyers uh, in Ecuador who was working with Donziger you know, doing the speaking and Donziger doing the speaking. Uh, but the image of Cabrera's assistant there at that meeting when he's supposed to be operating objectively and independently and meeting with the plaintiff's lawyers and Donziger and the, what appeared to be some, their clients, um, that scene, that video was deleted. That is largely true, but it lacks context. Berlinger argued this point in court as well. When you go to Sundance, often a film is not quite finished. You get in, great, you, you, they tell you by Thanksgiving, you rush, you finish the film. Of, of course, you're showing a finished film. So just to be clear, you find out at Thanksgiving, at the end of November, if your film has made it into Sundance. And Sundance is in January, which means you have just a few weeks really to lock your film in before doing all of the sort of post-production things that are required to finish a film and show it at the festival. It often, you know, is not the final version of the film. Brothers Keeper was premiered at 
Sundance and, you know, sitting with an audience, we realized it needed some changes and it was 20 minutes too long. So the final version of Brothers Keeper differed from the Sundance version. In fact, virtually every film I have brought to Sundance, we've, we make tweaks afterwards. So we showed the movie at Sundance. Chevron was invited to come to Sundance and they declined. The plaintiffs came and Donziger at some point sent me uh, a 10, 12 page memo with all the things he didn't like about the film. So this tracks with our interactions with Donziger for this podcast, too. You know, he's a guy who likes to control the story. And that's not uncommon, especially when you're covering a contentious legal case. Lawyers in particular, and in this case, Donziger, because he's had so much personal blowback from this case, find it useful to make their case in the press. And Berlinger was used to dealing with that. He had made two other films focused on legal cases. Here's Berlinger again explaining how this one change did happen. And 99% of his suggestions, in fact, 99.5% of his suggestions, I disregarded, you know. But Pablo in particular was concerned that the condensation of chronology, you know, which is what I was told, um, by Donziger and by Fajardo, that the condensation of chronology in my film made it appear that somebody who shouldn't have been in a scene uh, was in a scene. And would I consider removing two cutaways? That's the thing people have you know, the implication is that I re-edited the film and changed scenes. I mean, literally two cutaways that included a guy from uh, Axion Ecologica, I believe, you know, an NGO, who later became part of Cabrera's independent team, who was at a meeting. And this person is sitting in the background. He's not a character in the film. Nobody knows who he is with regard to the film. It's so inside baseball as to whether or not he belongs at this place at this time. And admittedly, I didn't fully understand the issues. And, and so I removed, and like, I feel like this is such inside baseball that people may not even understand what I'm talking about, but I removed two cutaways. It was one of about... I can't even I can't even give you a number. There was probably sixty or seventy notes about what to change in my film, alarm over how much Chevron is in the movie, um, all sorts of notes that I was given that I'm like, hey, dude, this is my film, and I'm not doing these changes. I will make that one change, and I think I made one other change that was an accuracy issue. Ultimately, those changes and the fact that Donziger had pitched Berlinger the film in the first place outweighed the context. With this full explanation that I gave to the court that A, I have final cut. Here's all the paperwork to prove I had final cut. B, here's the 10-page memo from Donziger in which he's asking me to make a zillion changes and I didn't make those changes and wrote him a terse email in response saying, hey, I'm not making these changes. I'm the filmmaker. I have final cut. All of that should have outweighed you know, this idea that somehow because I made a change, I wasn't a journalist. You know, in hindsight, it should have been a more of a red flag. But at the time, it just seemed like such a such a trivial detail. The irony is that that 
little trivial detail of removing three two-second cutaways, or maybe it was two, three-second cutaways, one or the other. But literally, we're talking about six seconds of footage. The fight over those six seconds and how they defined Berlinger's relationship with the plaintiffs dragged on for years and really punished Berlinger. On several occasions, as my kids were getting off the bus, a private detective, or seemingly so, somebody in a flashy red BMW being as conspicuous as possible would screech, would screech up to our driveway and take photographs of my kids getting off the bus and walking up the driveway. Now, this was during my court proceeding. Can I say Chevron was responsible for it? No. Can I say Gibson Dunn was responsible for it? No, but it happened. Uh, there were times where I felt my phone was being tapped. I heard the distinct clicks uh, on my phone that just didn't sound right. I was investigated by Kroll, a corporate investigator. Documentarians and investigative journalists are somewhat prepared for this sort of thing. We carry expensive specialty insurance policies, for example, and we have lawyers who look things over for us. But this was way beyond anything Berlinger ever thought he'd be up against. Because it, it became extremely costly, beyond anything I could have ever imagined. My footage was subpoenaed. I fought, lost appealed, lost, and then after the footage was turned over at some point, they then went after my computer. I lost, appealed, lost, and had to turn the contents of my computer over as well. And then in addition to that, because, and this is where the pressure tactics come in, uh, Chevron attorneys were intimating to my attorneys that they might seek criminal action against me. Okay, so this is really worth paying attention to. Berlinger wasn't being accused of fraud himself or of libel or various other crimes, but Chevron was hinting that they could use misprision. When you observe a fraud, you're supposed to have sort of a legal responsibility to report it, and if you don't, that's called misprision. The idea that a documentary filmmaker could be guilty of this crime simply by filming other people who may or may not be engaging in some kind of fraudulent activity is pretty scary when you think about it. So their theory of the Donziger case and the plaintiff's case was that it was fraudulent. It was a fraudulent case that the cancer claims were fraudulent, that the, that the, you know, that the entire basis for the case was fraudulent. And so I, as a documentarian, who by definition is an observer, so that I as a documentarian observing fraud was therefore a party to fraud. That's something that could really undermine quite a bit of investigative documentary filmmaking or journalism. You know, you have one of the largest corporations in America threatening to bring criminal charges against you, or intimating, I should say, you know, it was scary. And luckily that didn't go anywhere. But I remember turning to my wife at one point and saying, you know, if, if something doesn't turn around, uh, we could lose everything. The, again, I wasn't being sued for libel or defamation. I wasn't being sued for wrongdoing. I was defending the turning over of my footage to an interested party in somebody else's litigation. And, you know, it, 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 it took a lot out of me. 
Ultimately, the courts didn't think Berlinger's deal memo or the fact that he had ignored the vast majority of Donziger's notes outweighed the fact that he had changed this one scene and that Donziger had initially pitched him the story. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that he had to hand over his outtakes, although he was able to narrow that request down a little bit. He had to hand over his computer too. I mean, here's an example that just still makes my head spin. After I lost the footage case, they then used the footage to justify getting my laptop, the contents of my computer. And so these discovery, and I lost, I, you know, I appealed, I lost. And, you know, these discovery experts walked into my office, you know, wearing skinny black ties like men in black. It was just really bizarre. I had to, me and several others on the team had to hand over our computers where they sucked down the entire contents of my laptop. The court had approved about a hundred key search terms, but some of them were very vague. Like for example, because one of the experts who had worked on the case in Ecuador was named Charles Kalmbacher, Charles was a search term. Well, Berlinger's financial account was with Charles Schwab, and he didn't want Chevron to have access to all of his financial files. So he had to make something called a privilege log, which meant he had to pay lawyers lots of money to go through all of the documents on all of his devices and prove to the court that things like bank statements and love letters to his wife and various other personal items should not be handed over to Chevron as part of this case. And I had to pay my lawyers lots of money to go through all the things that were captured by these search terms and prove to the court why those are privileged communications or irrelevant communications that shouldn't be turned over to Chevron. I mean, it was, it was an insane process. The cost of that kind of litigation is just not something most journalists or filmmakers can afford. Just to put this in perspective, the movie Crude cost about $1.2 million to make, and Crude the lawsuit ended up costing an estimated $1.3 million. So this kind of thing can be crushing financially. And keep in mind, Berlinger wasn't even really the focus of this RICO case. He wasn't being accused of doing anything himself. He just didn't want to hand over his footage to be used in someone else's case. This type of scorched earth strategy was exactly the sort of thing that the lawyers and the PR experts had been brought on by Chevron to do. Even just having these sort of army of lawyers you need to scour footage and notice a six second difference between the Sundance and Netflix versions of the film requires pretty deep pockets. I mean, I give the Chevron lawyers a lot of credit for noticing it because it's like astounding to me that they did. Um, but it ended up being the linchpin that turned this case, meaning my case, about having to turn all my footage over because they used that fact quite successfully to discredit me as a journalist, which in turn, uh, you know, made me not protected uh, as a journalist under the journalist privilege. That's the thing. Berlinger doesn't even necessarily blame Mastro or Gibson Dunn for what they did. They were doing what they were hired to do. But he says these kinds of aggressive tactics only underscore why he felt he needed to make this documentary in the first place. Look, they did everything that they should do to defend their client, but it's once again, it's illustrative of 
You know, the focus was changed from the underlying pollution to demonizing anybody who had anything to do with the plaintiffs and to take the eye off of the central question of the, the, the damage and that we have a system of justice where deep pockets prevail. These outtakes were used to compel all sorts of additional materials from Donziger and the rest of the team, including weeks' worth of depositions. And again, this was all happening before the verdict came out in Ecuador. It formed the basis of this racketeering or RICO suit that was filed against the plaintiffs and their attorneys just a couple weeks before they won their case in Ecuador. We're going to get into the details of that next time. I think if I had it to do over, I would advise my client to completely protest the trial. And unfortunately, Stephen didn't have that option because Stephen lives in New York and he's subject to the jurisdiction of the court and he has to defend the case. But my clients did have that option and that was not a card we chose to play. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show was created, reported, and written by me, Amy Westervelt. My co-reporter this season is Karen Savage. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. The show's editorial consultant is Rika Murthy. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Original score by B. Beeman. Fact-checking by Wudan Yan. Our artwork for this season was done by the super talented Matt Fleming. Special thanks to Trevor Gowan and Emily Gertz. If you are a Patreon subscriber, thank you. Your money is helping to make this season. And as a special thank you to Patreon members, we're providing a variety of benefits, including bonus content and early access to episodes in this season. If that sounds appealing to you or you just want to support our work, go over to patreon.com slash drilled and sign up. We also have some merch associated with that. You can find stories, documents, and photos related to this season on our website at drillednews.com. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. It's Amy again. Here's David Lammy, Labor MP of Tottenham, England, on why climate justice can't happen without racial justice. You can find more episodes like this one on Ted's podcast, Countdown, wherever you listen. My parents' home country of Guyana is one of the most vulnerable countries on earth to the effects of climate change. So far, Guyana has contributed relatively little to the climate emergency but it's one of the countries facing the most serious threats from it. While the annual carbon dioxide emissions per head in the United States 
is a staggering 16.5 metric tons. In Guyana, it's just 2.6. It is a pattern repeated across the globe. Those countries that have contributed least to the climate breakdown, mainly in the global south, will suffer the most from floods, droughts, and rising temperatures. This is a pattern of suffering with a long history. The exploitation of our planet's natural resources has always been tied to the exploitation of people of color. The logic of colonization was to extract valuable resources from our planet through force, paying no attention to its secondary effects. The climate crisis is in a way colonialism's natural conclusion. The solution is to build a new coalition made up of all the groups most affected by this emergency. Black people in American cities who are already protesting that they cannot breathe. People of color in Guyana watching sea levels rise to the point where many of their homes become uninhabitable. Young people in places like Tottenham, London, afraid of the world that they will grow old in. And progressive allies from all nations, of all races, religions, creeds, and ages on their side, all demanding recognition that climate justice is linked to racial justice, social justice, and intergenerational justice too. 